ambition to finishing it up. We spent two weeks on it. We'll see how this goes, but uh, quite a bit yet to cover here. I was just thinking this morning in how you would rank the deliverances of God, and in many respects, everyone's different, whether it was an individual such as Daniel, uh, or and many others, Joseph, you, you start naming them, and uh, Gideon from the Assyrians, and so on, and each is unique. God had a different way of approaching every situation that came up, and has so many, many different ways that he can perform a deliverance. He is so versatile. He doesn't do everything exactly the same way. The conditions are never exactly the same. And uh, I thought, well, how would you rank the greatest deliverances that God gave? And the first thing that came to mind was, of course, Egypt. Quite a little time spent on it in the Hebrews 11. And then I realized that even though we are coming up on, within about six weeks, the anniversary of that deliverance, that's not the greatest one. All of these others, I'll name a few, delivered people from the world. The greatest one delivers the world from the world and the world from Satan. The greatest deliverance of all was when Christ was born on this earth and walked it for 33 and a half years and then died for the whole world. Not only the world that then was and is today, but all the way back to Adam forward, he died to deliver all those billions and billions of people from sin and death. So that has to rank as the very highest by far above everything else he's done for people here on the earth. I think beyond that, you, you could get into an argument about it perhaps, but uh, it would appear to me that the most prominent would be uh, bringing Israel out of, uh, out of Egypt. And of course, even that was a type of the greater deliverance that Christ would give to all of us a little later on. Passover uh, being part and parcel with both of those. So the two greatest deliverances, I would say, have to do with the Passover and everything that has followed since then. You could maybe rank the others with entering the Promised Land, the shaking down of Jericho and the fleeing of their enemies is up there pretty high. Noah and the floods up there pretty high. Uh, there are a lot of things God has done. And this deliverance of the Jews in the days of Esther and Mordecai uh, is also quite a thing. Many miracles here, and I think so many types of God the Father and of Christ and of the bride uh, and so on and of Satan are kind of woven through this story. I don't think all of them are completely direct and they're not happening as we read it exactly like the plan of salvation uh, that is laid out otherwise in other places in the Bible. <clears throat> but it's similar enough in the things that happened that we can easily tie them together. And as I said the last couple of weeks, I think that God is not, the fact that he is not mentioned by name in here 
speaks a great deal. That he can deliver from behind the scenes without us always knowing exactly what's going on. And I think that we're going through some of that right now. He's made some promises throughout the prophecies. And we don't see his name yet. We don't see him in a really powerful way yet. And yet, I think in our lives and in what we've seen in the church, we can see his working behind the scenes all the way through. I can go back with the history of worldwide and then of the scattering, and it's all right in there that everything is happening just according to the way God said it would. And now we're in that phase where we have entered the end time, and it's simply getting worse and worse by the day and by the hour, uh, as it is being fulfilled before our very eyes. And that's what they were experiencing here, was God from behind the scenes doing things, and if you're aware, you'll see his hand. It's very clear. And Esther showed faith by fasting and asking them to fast at the end of chapter 4. And she says, it's up to God. If I perish, I perish. That's what she's implying. I'll fast, obviously, to God. And his answer would be, if I perish, I perish. I will walk forward in faith. I'll do what I should do. And Mordecai had showed her what she should do, even as Christ shows us what we're to do. He's our brother, he's our husband-to-be, not an uncle in this case, but the story is similar. And Mordecai certainly fulfilled many of the aspects of what Christ has done and is doing for us. So in chapter 5, it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. So she was not all talk and no action. She moved forward in faith. She didn't just fast and pray, and then do nothing, she moved forward in faith. Uh, and the king sat on his royal throne of the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, I imagine she was trembling because she hadn't been called in 30 days, and she didn't know what the reaction would be. She didn't know what politics had been going on behind the scenes, Completely, she knew some, because she knew that there was a plot to kill, and that's what they're concerned about. So, she knew Haman had been doing some dirty work, just as Satan goes before the throne of God daily and does dirty work on you and me, accusing us of everything he can think of to accuse us of, true or false. He doesn't care. He's a lying witness. He'll, if we give him something to give that's true, he'll use that. If we don't, he'll make up something to accuse us of. That's the way Satan works. So she didn't know everything that had been said, so I'm sure she came with fear and trembling, as the prayer and fasting would indicate. <clears throat> and it was quite a relief. I imagine she exhaled quite uh, heavily when he pointed the scepter at her. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What will you, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you to the half of the kingdom. 
That's not offered too often. I think it was in Herod's case. <laughs> and she didn't want it. She just wanted John the Baptist's head. Uh, that was enough for her. But here he offers half the kingdom. And I think there's uh, some parallel there between Christ offering us to be his bride. And in one sense, that's half the kingdom. Uh, he'll still be in charge, obviously, but we'll be his wife, his queen, working with him to rule the kingdom. So, in a sense, we're sharing it with him, which is half of it. Uh, he always in charge, of course, and we'll never, ever lose sight of that as to who's the boss. That we'll never forget. Uh, that's very important. Anyway, Esther answered, if it seemed good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. She had thought this through, and she was going to be very careful and very diplomatic and take her time. She didn't ask for much. Now, she may have realized what Haman was, obviously, and come in rushing into the throne and said, King, you got to kill Haman. Uh, that might not have worked out too well. <laughs> so she took her time and she asked for something very small first. If it seemed good to the king, let the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So she had already done prep work. She had something to offer before she ever ask her big request. Now, we don't have anything to give God. We, he doesn't owe us a thing. He gave us life. He gave us opportunity. We have pretty much over the years, all of us, fouled that up in one way or another. And we don't have really a right to ask for anything other than mercy, forgiveness, but we have ourselves to give to him. That's the sacrifice that we can make, is to say, I'm all yours. Do with me as you please. And that's pretty much what she was doing here. If I perish, I perish. Do with me as you please. So she offered herself, and the king was aware of what happened when he either did or did not offer the scepter. People either lived or they died. That's just the way the kingdom was run. So he was very aware of that when he offered it. But she had something to give him. And what we have to give the king is ourselves. That's all we have to give. Our good works are offset by our sins. So, you know, any sin is enough to kill you. It doesn't take six or eight or a million One's enough. And if that one's not forgiven, you're dead. So we have ourselves to offer as a living sacrifice, and that's all we have to offer. And that's kind of what she brought. And in offering herself, she brought some food and drink along. <laughs> that was good thinking there. I'll feed you, and I'll bring you a drink. Then the king said, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther has said. The king was had favor to her, and he wanted her food and her wine, or whatever she was drinking. 
Let's get this going. Lunchtime. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said to Esther at the banquet of wine, calls it a banquet of wine here, not just food, but I suspect it had, when you say banquet, it had food involved, and then maybe the overreaching or overpowering or main ingredient might have been the wine. Uh, Enjoy a meal with wine. And he said, what is your petition? It wasn't just to come to a party. He knew there was something else afoot. And it shall be granted. And what is your request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. So he was willing to give a lot. He thought a lot of Esther. I hope that we can come to the point that Christ says to us, What can I give you? Up to half the kingdom. And we say, we'd love to help you rule it. (laughs) No, we'd love to be with you. Then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is. She has another layer here. (laughs) More food and drink. Before she makes her real request. She's, She's working up to this thing in a very diplomatic, judicious, and... Wonderful way, really. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant it, uh, let the king and Haman come to the banquet, I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Let's Let's eat and drink on it one more time, and then I'll ask you what's really on my mind. She's giving him some time to think about things. I'm sure in his mind he's saying, now she's done this and she's doing it again. What is it she wants? What is it she wants? Had to be going through his head. She gave him time to think about it. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. He had quite an ego, this one. And I think in many respects he is a type of Satan. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of anger against Mordecai. So Satan wants to rule. And he wants all of us to pay obeisance to him. He wanted Christ to bow down to him and tempted him to do so. And he does the same with us. He wants us to bow down before him, to give him honor. He is now dealing with the leaders of our nation, many of whom are out-and-out Satan worshipers and are going to try to get rid of any form of Christianity or the name of Christ and make it Luciferian. He has even worked around to put Christ's name, the light bringer, on himself. is how far he's gone. So he was happy. Oh, nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. Oh, I hate that Jew. I'll get him later, but right now I'm a happy man. I'm going back into the king and Esther, the king and the queen. Ah, there's nobody like me. Ah, 
And when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman told him of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things where the king had promoted him and how he advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Oh, he was great. Wonderful. Haman said, Moreover, and on top of all this that I am, yes, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king to the banquet that she had prepared, but me, myself, and I. Oh. And tomorrow I am invited to her also with the king. Not only today, but again tomorrow. We're just the... The perfect triangle, just the three of us. Haman answered the king, for the man, wait a minute, where am I? Oh, I got, I'm skipping ahead. Let's, we got here. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is all so wonderful, but that Mordecai is a thorn in my flesh. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends to him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. That's about seventy-five feet. And tomorrow speak you to the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go you in merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. Now that was quite a job, actually. He put a crew on that to get it all done in a day and time. So he, he had the perfect thing going now. He thought he was going to win. Doesn't Satan look at it that way? He's decided he's going to defeat God. He decided he was going to win way back there before man was ever created. And tried and lost. And now he's going to try again. And this time I'm sure he has deceived himself into thinking he's going to win. And all his enemies are going to be hung. So everything's going to be good. Now to me it's very, very interesting here what happens next. Because Haman is determined to go to the king the very next day and request Mordecai be hung. That's what's on his mind. He goes to bed with that oh-so-pleasant thought on his mind, and wakes up the next day, just a raring, to get to the king's place. I bet he woke up early. i got to get there because Mordecai is going down today. Because I am in good with the king and with the queen, and nothing's going to stop this. we got the gallows made. Going to get her done. Remember in the book of Daniel, the king not being able to sleep and having difficulty and waking up and thinking things and wondering. And, and then when Daniel was going to be killed, he was worried about that all night. God has a way of putting thoughts into people's minds that can be disquieting to them. Let's go on. On that night could not the king sleep. He probably slept fine the night before, but not that night. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. 
Why would he think of that? Was that thought maybe plugged into his mind? I don't think about getting up and reading ancient history when I can't sleep at night. But he did. For some reason, he thought, it sounds kind of dry to me, get up and read all the things that happened all the way back. Let's, let's just read this. Must have been pretty much awake. So he says, come read to me all these things from the past. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. So they read that story to him. He'd forgotten about it. And the king said, what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? He saved my life. They were going to kill me. What has anybody done for him? He should be rewarded. Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, there is nothing done for him. He got no thank you. He got no accolades. He got no reward. Nothing. <clears throat> we work at serving Christ, do we not? And the Father, the best we can. What's been done for us? Nothing. Not really. Except maybe from the Father and the Son themselves. But the world certainly doesn't recognize our working for the boss and will not reward us for it nor give us thanks for it. In fact, they want to kill us for it. And the king said, Who is in the court? I'm going to do something about this. Who is here? Now, I don't know what time of day that was, but he'd been up maybe most of the night having this stuff read to him. And it came to light maybe toward morning. And he said, something needs to be done about this. Who is in the court? Maybe it was early enough that nobody normally would have been in the court much. But I suspect Haman had spent some night, some time up that night thinking about how wonderful it was going to be to kill Mordecai and then to have his banquet. You know how it is before you go on a trip sometimes? You have trouble. You know you need a good night's sleep so you can drive all day the next day? And you can't sleep? Because of the anticipation and the change and all the things that are on your mind. So Haman came early. He was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Let's get this thing on. Well, Haman. So... King said, let him come in. If he's here, get him in here. So Haman came in, gladly. He had a request in mind. He was happy to come in. The king said to him, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? <laughs> oh, got it made. He delights in me. I am really going to lay this one on. What could honor me more? I imagine his mind was going a 
thousand miles a minute right then. I'm going to be honored, and I want to think of the greatest thing that could possibly be done for me. Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, and here I stand, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king uses to wear. The king's own clothes. The Satan envisioned wearing God's robes. And the horse that the king rides upon, his own personal horse. And the crown royal, which is set upon his head, the highest crown in the realm. I will represent you, O king, wearing your crown. How much higher could you think in that province than that? Wearing the crown of the king. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delights to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Oh, so proud. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as you have said. Here he's just gloating. Oh, he's going to do it. I'm going to get to ride the horse with the crown and the apparel through the streets and everyone will bow before me because when you see that crown, that's what you do. And do so... <laughs> <laughs> Even so, to Mordecai the Jew that sits at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. Do it just the way you described it. Talk about up and down emotions. <laughs> wow, did he hit the bottom there. But he couldn't not do it. King said it. So Haman begrudgingly took the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him. Haman himself had to say the words. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And I doubt he said to Mordecai, the wonderful and great Jew. I doubt if he added that. He spit it out, all right, but it wasn't with pleasure. When Satan is cast back to this earth and allowed to accuse us no more, he's not going to be a happy camper. And he's going to chase the church to Zion and turn on the remnant of her seed, the 90% that are left, and do his level best to kill them, and he's going to get most of them, if not all of them. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. He got off the horse, took off the apparel and the crown, put his own clothes back on, and came to sit at the gate. Now there's a lot more humble approach than Haman's was. He went right back to what he had been doing. But Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. He knew then he was in trouble. 
Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. A little different story than he'd had the day before. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, to him, Here's what's happening. If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom you have begun to fall, and he had, you shall not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. They could see what was happening. Pretty clear. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. You talk about having some swirling thoughts and emotions. (laughs) He had gone from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and now he was going in to the king and Esther, and he knew Esther was Mordecai's niece. I imagine he had some serious trouble in his head. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again to Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is your petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request? And it shall be performed even to half the kingdom. Repeated it again. She didn't want half the kingdom. She answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. What petition do we put before the Father and the Son? It's not about riches. It's not about the physical. It's grant us life. Grant us eternal life with you. That's all she asked for. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed. Haven't we been sold under sin to be destroyed before Satan? Yes, we have. To be slain and to perish for our sins. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue. We wouldn't have been killed, we'd have just been slaves. We're slaves for Christ, bought with a price, redeemed by his life. So, here we are, we're yours, keep us alive, take care of us. Although the enemy could not countervail the king's, wait a minute, we're sold to perish, Uh, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the king, the queen, Who is he, and where is he, that dared presume in his heart to kill you and all your people? He hadn't quite put that together yet. Who is it that's doing this to you? And Esther said, their adversary, that's a name for Satan, and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. It was going the way he had been told by his wise men and wife, and it wasn't very pleasant. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine, in his wrath, went into the palace garden. He was so angry, he couldn't stand it. 
He just got up and walked out. Went into the garden to clear his mind, to think things through, to figure what should be done here. Now, while he was gone, the plot thickened. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. Only one he could plea to was the queen because the king had already said he'd do whatever she said. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. The king was very angry and angry at him because he had plotted to kill the queen and all her relatives. Is God angry at Satan for trying to kill the queen and all her relatives? Is God strong enough and big enough and powerful enough to get rid of his enemies? Do you have faith that he can do that? Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. He thought it through. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. He was, she was sitting there, I guess, maybe propped up or whatever. And he fell on the bed that she was on. This didn't look too good when the king came back in. He was there pleading for his life. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? It's been bad enough he plotted to kill her and all of her relatives. Now is he going to force her right here in front of me? I imagine his anger went up a few more notches, if at all possible. As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So it was a banquet for three, but there were servants in the room and some of the king's people that did things for him. They knew what was going to come of that. They covered his face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, here's here's an answer for you, O king. Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman has made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king... Stand in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Said, Okay, took care of that. And his anger was gone because the problem had been resolved. And on that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jew's enemy to Esther the queen. So Haman impaled upon the top of it, and the gallows and the house were given to Mordecai. I'm sure he cleaned Haman and the gallows out pretty quickly. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. She had held back who she was for a long time here throughout this whole story. So it was a surprise to the king when he found out She was a Jew, and that it was her people that Haman had plotted to kill. Now, is it strange today that God has had his people pretty much under wraps? Back in Worldwide, his purpose was to call many. 
which he did. So it was a fairly public thing that the church was there, even though the church itself was a little afraid and called themselves Ambassador College uh, instead of Church of God. I remember, remember they sending me business cards as a representative of Ambassador College instead of the church. So even then, there was a certain fear of the world and what could happen, so let's go by college instead of church. But yet in all, through that, God called many people. And out of that then, he scattered it, and he is calling a few, 10%, to come to finish his work. But that 10%, and the other 90% for that matter, at this point, are very obscure. They disappeared. I remember a time in the 60s, when I first went out in the ministry, when you could ask nearly anybody anywhere about Herbert Armstrong and Garner Ted Armstrong and the World Tomorrow broadcast, and nearly everybody had heard of it. They might not have listened to it much. They might not have been involved with it. But whether I was on an airplane or in a restaurant or wherever, and somebody would ask me who I was, I'd say, have you heard of Garner Ted Armstrong and the World Tomorrow broadcast or the Plain Truth magazine? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Everybody knew it. It was nationwide. It was pretty much worldwide. They knew of it. Today, you ask people about it, what's that? <laughs> Never heard of that. Once in a while, you'll find somebody that can remember it, but they're pretty old. Because it's been gone now for a long time. So we've pretty well disappeared. And we're going to stay that way until the time is right. And then we'll appear on the scene with great power and great strength from God. To deliver his 10%. And to show the world who God is. That's the job that is ahead. Until that time, we will be obscure. That's the way the story is written. Right here, and in the rest of Scripture as well. So, she said, you may not know it yet. You already know I'm a Jew. And it was the Jewish people he wanted to kill... But this Mordecai that's been in your gates, my uncle, he's a Jew too. I'm very close to my uncle Mordecai, and he's the one that helped this situation and helped Haman's plot come out and got him destroyed because he was not only my enemy, but your enemy, O great king, which he was, because what did he want? He wanted to replace the king. He wanted to wear his clothes, ride his horse, and wear his crown. Have any doubt what Haman wanted? <laughs> That's pretty clear, isn't it? The king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman. That must have been pleasant. When he told, okay, we're going to hang you on the gallows, mister. Give me the ring. That was a pleasant thing for Haman. Pull it off and give it to the king. I used my left hand, I'm left-handed. I'm sure it was probably the right hand that he came the Lord's ring on. <clears throat> Gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, 
So the queen herself gave Haman that nice house that Haman had. And Esther spoke yet again before the king. So she's pushing it a little bit, but she had found favor so far, so she felt it was worth it. And she fell down at his feet and besought him with tears (coughs) to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Do we fall on our faces? Do we bow our knees and ask God to deliver us from Satan the devil who's at our right hand trying to kill us all? Do we ask for his kingdom to come and Satan be put away? Yes, we do, to save not only ourselves, but everyone. Not just the Jews, per se, but all of those in the world who, at some point or another, have opportunity to be spiritual Jews, physical or not. So, O husband of mine, please don't just save me and Mordecai, save the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, so Esther rose and stood before the king. So she was on her face in tears, and he offered it, and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, she's using almost as much diplomacy as the book of Philemon here, and how... Paul wrote that in trying to win somebody over. Let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Edomite ultimately, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. Read the book of Obadiah, and you'll find that Esau, or the Edomites, are here at this end time in positions of great power and money, And they are going to be so joyful at the destruction of this nation. The Rothschilds, the uh, Ross Perot's, those people. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come to my people? Do we pray for God's? Elect, do we pray for his people, for each other? For how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he had laid his hand upon the Jews. He says, I'm, I'm going along with you here. Look what I've already done. Write you also for the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. So he's telling telling him, I've already said that they can kill the Jews. And once that proclamation is made and sealed with the king's ring, it can't be changed. So I'm giving you the option of writing anything else you want to write to do as you please toward the Jews. I can't countermand what I've already done, but you fix it, is what he's saying. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, 
that is, the month Sevan, on the twenty-third day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. So Mordecai is given free reign to say and do anything he wants, except reverse the prior decree. So he commanded the Jews and the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces, which are from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, unto <coughs> every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. So he sends this to everybody. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent it letters, sent letters by posts on horseback, on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. So, this was in the third month, and it was set up for the twelfth month. Nine months later, this baby would be born. Now, what does God tell us here at the end? He says he's going to make us a sharp, new, threshing instrument. I think it's in Isaiah 40. It might be in 41. I think it's the end of 40. He also says the same thing in Micah 4. To make us a sharp, threshing instrument. Now, when you send a combine or a threshing machine through the alfalfa or the corn or whatever, what does it do? It just tears it apart and saves the good and gets rid of the bad. Now that's what he says he's going to make us. Go on to Micah 5, and he says that seven, even eight principal men will go out against the Assyrian and send them fleeing as in the days of Gideon, where they had their little lamps and stood on the mountain and all shouted, and the Assyrians jumped up and put the sword to each other. And the ones that survived ran off. He's going to do the same thing with his people here at the end. And then he's going to follow that up with the two witnesses going all over the earth, sending plagues wherever they wish. If people hear the message and won't repent and turn to God as they did in Nineveh, they will instead have plagues upon them. Water turned to blood and all the things that happened in Egypt. Repeated. That's what Mordecai says the Jews would be able to do to all their enemies. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A little bit different story, a little different scenario, but the same kind of deliverance that God is going to give here at the end. Now, I have said today that the greatest deliverance was Christ's sacrifice for us that we might live eternally. The second was bringing the Jews out of Egypt, or Mitzrayim. 
That is going to change. The first one will never change. That is the greatest deliverance in the universe ever, is Christ's sacrifice for all of us. The second greatest will supplant coming out of Egypt by the end-time deliverance of God and his people from Satan and the world and Satan's last attempt to destroy us before we're glorified. That will be the greatest deliverance just behind Christ's sacrifice. What is just ahead of us will be greater than Mithraim and the Red Sea. We will not only have one empire, Mithraim, against us, but the whole world, the whole new world order, Satan, the ruler of this world, is going to come after God's people with everything he has, including all the people of the earth except us. That's a greater deliverance. And he'll let him, he will let them think they won right at the end when they killed the two. And oh, will they party. Like Haman went back to his wife and his wise men and told them how wonderful things were going to be. And then three and a half days later, what an oops. As God resurrects them and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the rest of us. And they rise to meet him in the air. Satan will hang his head that day. Anyway, they had to be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies in verse 13. So they went out and delivered that. And Mordecai went out in verse 15 from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Christ is preparing crowns for us. Says so there, third chapter of Malachi, and he says he's going to prepare a place for us, is what he told the apostles. So he's preparing a city, a kingdom, a palace, and crowns with jewels in them for us. And we're going to wear them, just as Mordecai wore them here. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Read uh, some of the scriptures in Isaiah about how we'll be here at the end. And in every province and in every city where the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. Have a good day. (laughs) Became popular here recently. But it was back there a long time ago. We are going to rejoice and sing before God when he brings his people to deliverance, even physically. And those fasts of Zechariah are going to become feasts of joy. They had been fasting. Now they wound up feasting because of this deliverance. Many of the people of the land became Jews. They converted to Judaism. For the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now in the twelfth month, Adar, the king's commandment came to be put in execution, literal execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them 
So it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. It's going to happen again. The Jews gathered themselves together through all the provinces and the fear of the people came upon them and all the rulers of the provinces helped the Jews in verse 3 because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. Haman was no longer a threat, but Mordecai was there and he was a Jew and he had been given all the power of the kingdom save that of being king himself. So they were afraid of him at this point. So it turned around. They would have helped the other people kill the Jews had not God turned this whole thing around and put Mordecai and Esther in charge. And Satan would kill all of us if God did not stop it. He says, when that comes, don't go back in your house. Don't even look back. Flee to Zion because he'll kill you if you hesitate. That's how tight it's going to be. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went throughout the provinces. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with a stroke of the sword and slaughter, uh, and killed those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, 500 men. I don't know how many men were in the palace, but they killed 500 of them. That's a big palace. A lot of people around and names a bunch of them, including the sons of Haman, and killed them, but they didn't touch the spoil. They just wanted to get rid of their enemies, but they cared less about the spoil. We're going to be given power over our enemies. We will not touch the spoil. We could care less about the riches of this world, because Christ is going to give us a city with the streets all of gold. Who could care about trying to take away from this world what they have? It's nothing in comparison to what God has reserved for us. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan was brought to the king. Didn't faze him. He wasn't in horror. The king said to Esther, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men right here. What else have they done through the provinces? <laughs> That's a lot of people right here in the palace. What about out there? And what is your request further? It'll be done. They killed 500 here. I don't know how many they've killed out there. But whatever you want, it's going to happen. Wow. We're going to get governed with Christ a thousand years. We will be given the power to do as we please, because what we please at that time will be to please him and to please our father and to please the people of the world over whom we have rulership. Then said Esther, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow according to this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now, they'd already killed them, but she wanted them hung up on the gallows as an example of what happens to you if you come against Mordecai and Esther and the Jews. So there was a public display made of them. King said, do it. And they did. 
For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves on the 14th and slew 300 men at Shushan, but on the prey they laid not their hand. So apparently on the next day they killed 300 more. That's what that looks like. And they'd killed 75,000 through the provinces. A lot of people. 17, on the 13th day of the month, uh, on the 14th, the same rested they and made it a day of feasting and gladness. God had given them the upper hand. And we're going to do the same thing living in Zion and being blessed by the king. And we'll no longer fast, but feast. But the Jews were at Shushan assembled together, made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feastings and a good day again. And ascending portions one to another. They were generous with each other. We try to do it on a very, very small way here on Purim is to have some little gifts that are given out to each person uh, just to remind of this. doesn't have to be much, just a reminder of what God did and what God is about to do. So Mordecai wrote another letter and said the 14th and the 15th day are to be kept annually as a memorial, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to joy, as the fast will be with us. And from morning to a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. Christ, throughout his ministry, always wanted the poor, the widow, and the orphan taken care of. That's one of the keys to righteousness, is taking care of those who have less than one of us might have. The Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and is written, uh, because Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. He had gotten together with his cronies, and they cast lots like us taking dice and rolling them, they were trying to convince themselves that they could go against the Jews and win. So they were superstitious, and they started casting lots to see if this would happen. Now the Jews, along with uh, Aaron's vest that had the stones on it, they cast lots in a righteous manner before God, and whichever one of those jewels lit up on Aaron's chest signified which tribe something was going on in, good or bad. So it was a thing that God used with Israel, but it's something the pagans used out of superstition and paganism. A good thing of God used in a wrong way. The last time it was used, we know of, was with the apostles choosing who would be the one to replace Judas. And they did that uh, there, and God blessed it and chose the one he wanted. And since the Holy Spirit came shortly thereafter, 
We've not used that anymore. Now we go before God on our knees and beseech Him uh, and communicate Him with Him mentally and verbally to ask what we might need. And then He can answer as He pleases, just as He did with Purim. So, they call these days Purim, in verse 26, after the name of Pure. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come to them. So, the casting of lots, or Pur, was used against them. So, now that they had, through God, overcome that, they called it Purim. So that they might remember how this plot had occurred. The Jews ordained, and all those that joined with them, should it, that it should not fail, they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. And they should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, all Jews, wherever they were. And that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Now, we have become spiritual Jews, and even though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, I see his hand all through it, behind the scenes, working all this out, and according to the other scriptures, the way he said he will deliver us here, and has in the past. So why did God put it here if he would not want us to therefore remember as well his deliverances of the past and the deliverance he is about to give us. Here we are, a month little over from Passover, but it's in the twelfth month that this falls, and normally the first month, the two greatest deliverances, Christ himself and from Egypt. And we still keep those as a memorial because they represent what is about to happen again. God delivering his people. So to me, it's very important that we keep Purim. Now, when I was in Worldwide growing up, I never understood the extent of the deliverance God has promised us here at the end. Never understood all those prophecies and how they would come to pass in the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the 10%. We never understood that. We knew there'd be a call someday and you'd jump on an airplane and go to Petra. That's about the extent of our understanding. And both of those turned out wrong. Now we know. Now we know. Then Esther the queen wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. So it came from, from Mordecai and from her. She was the queen. And sent the letters to all the Jews with words of peace and truth. Isn't that what we want? God says to the end time church, I will bring peace in this place. Right there in the book of Haggai where he says to build the temple. I'll bring peace. And he says that the two will be teaching truth to the remnant. So peace and truth is what he promises you and me. In this time of war and destruction at the end time. <clears throat> 
So, verse chapter 10, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai whereunto the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Now, what's a tribute? It was a verbal thing, written thing, but it probably had to do with money and great riches. A, tri a tribute to Mordecai and his greatness. So he was raised above everybody in the kingdom but the king himself, as Christ is going to do with the church. Raise us above everybody but himself and, of course, his father. For Mordecai the Jew was next to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. The words of Christ the King.